Hello everyone, this is R.W. Lee, and you are listening to Evenings in Church History, the goal of which is to connect Christians to their past to influence the future. Let's get started. Okay, before we get into the podcast proper, I need to go over a couple of housekeeping comments. First of all, I've never officially addressed the frequency of the podcast, so I want to go ahead and make that clear. My goal is at least, for for right now, one episode per week. I want to do more if possible, and if I can, uh, I I certainly will try. Um, However, for example, this coming week I'm not going to be able to because I have a few other assignments I'm working on, so we'll uh, see how that pans out in the future. But for right now, I want to do at least one episode per week. Secondly, I also want to say thank you for putting up with the sound quality and for any problems that we've had with the uh, noise, either in the background or, uh, you know, rubbing, scratching sounds that people have mentioned to me, too. I'm working on improving the sound. I'm having uh, new equipment um, installed on my computer and um, looking at buying new equipment as the need arises. And so if you'll bear with me for a little bit longer... Hopefully, uh, the sound quality should pick up in the next couple of episodes, and you should be able to notice that. Uh, Finally, I also wanted to say that uh, I know at the end of my podcast, I've mentioned contacting me, and uh, frankly, I just sort of assumed that the only people that would listen to this podcast were people that knew me directly, and so they could comment (laughs) directly to me about things I could improve on, Um, but the feedback has been incredible. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, This podcast has blown up far beyond what I thought it would, and uh, hopefully it keeps going. So uh, because of that, I I wanted to create an easy way for you to access me just to comment, um, give me your, you know, thoughts, suggestions, ideas, and most importantly, uh, questions. And that is uh, my email address. That's going to be echpodcast.com at gmail.com. Again, that's E-C-H podcast at gmail.com. Evenings in Church History, E-C-H, you you get what's going on there. Um, In the future, though, I I do want you to send me those questions that you have because I would like to do Q&A specials where maybe I address one question sent in by a listener or um, multiple questions, and so we'll see what that looks like. I'm not really sure... Uh, what that will pan out to be, but um, it's just an idea. So um, all that to say, thank you for listening. Thank you for recommending this podcast, for tuning in again. Um, and without any further ado, we begin with Augustine and the Donatists. Go back in time with me to the year 282. The Roman military has just assassinated the emperor of Rome, one by the name of Probus, and placed in his stead Diocletian, the son of a Dalmatian freedman, to take over. This Diocletian was one who would unify the empire, strengthen its economy, and bring about a sort of renaissance of the Roman empire. However, he also did one more thing. 
something that proved to be almost devastating to the Christian church. In the year 302, while at an imperial sacrifice, some Christians made a, a sign of the cross um, while an offering to the gods was being made, the Roman gods. Diocletian sees this, and not long after this, the signs that were supposed to be seen in the livers of the sacrifices made to the Roman gods were undetected, and Diocletian took this as a sign that the Christians had corrupted the sacrifice. And now in a move of pure fury, he commands that all Christians be banned from the empire and conform to the pagan religion. All Christians in the military must conform to the pagan religion, and this devastates the Christian population because dissent means treason, means torture. And so Christians were indeed tortured. They were stripped all the way down to their bones. And according to some accounts, salt and vinegar was poured into their wounds. They were tortured without remorse, sent into the Colosseum, and Diocletian was relentless. Some of these Christians who faced persecution held fast to their confession and proved to be great witnesses to the Christian faith. Others gave in to the temptation to bow the knee to Caesar, and in doing so became traitors to their Christian faith. This is where the issue of the Donatists becomes significant. This would be particularly devastating to the northern region of Africa within the Roman Empire. Christianity had grown rapidly in that area, in particular because as Christian Christian witness began to triumph past the Greek language into Latin, those who spoke Latin also tended to speak other languages, and some indigenous populations spoke Latin as well as their indigenous language, and so those who spoke native African tongues began to witness to others in their own language, and it was among these lower classes that Christianity began to explode, such as was the case with Augustine's mother, Monica, a Berber, if you'll remember. The Roman system and now Roman persecution was devastating among these groups of people. In particular, this had to do with the notion of authority as differentiated between the Romans as well as the Africans. In the Roman mind, authority meant a single person's office, not necessarily the virtues of that individual. However, in the African mind, it was those who were the wisest, the most powerful, the most courageous, the most virtuous, who should become the head or the chief of a tribe or a family. And if this person turned out to be a traitor to what people thought they were, well, they were unworthy of their post and were stripped of their position. As persecution broke out, inevitably some remained faithful while others turned away. For those who were faithful up until the end, they became martyrs and were regarded with the highest of esteem. For those who remained faithful up until the end of persecution, around the year 311, well, they were regarded as confessors and were likewise held in very high esteem among those in the church. While those who turned away from the faith were considered a part of the lapsed, 
These were those who confessed Caesar as Lord and bowed the knee, and in so doing betrayed their Christian brothers and sisters. This was reasonably greatly important and was devastating to the small knit small closely knit communities of faith that Christians had previously become accustomed to and this also posed an interesting problem when compared to the question of authority how do we deal with those who have lapsed and let's say they want to come back to the church do we admit them back with full membership is there a lesser kind of membership, maybe a partial membership that these people are to receive? And worse yet, what about those who were in authority? What about those such as the Bishop of Rome who gave in to temptation and lapsed? How should we deal with them? And what about the sacraments that they administered? If a lapsed minister had baptized certain individuals, does their baptism still count? Or do they need to be baptized by a confessor, one who withstood the persecution? You can understand, when comparing this to the notions of authority, how this could be an interesting problem. If you, like the majority of Romans, viewed the office itself as um, containing the ultimate authority, well, it doesn't necessarily matter who the individual was that uh, committed or that, that, that performed these sacraments. The sacraments, in and of themselves, by virtue of the office, were... Um, uh, were still valid. However, if, like the majority of the Africans, you viewed uh, authority as something intrinsic to the individual, well, if that individual falls away, then the acts performed by that individual are therefore null and void. I mean, why wouldn't they be? This is a person who has proven themselves to be a liar, and so um, they have betrayed uh, those whom they have supposedly been thought to have helped in the past. And so this created another distinction within the church, one that was very heavily rooted in race or um, ethnicity, insofar as some members viewed uh, some members viewed those who had lapsed as being able to be welcomed back into the church, and even those who had been leaders in the church as being valid for readmission, while others viewed them as uh, a, a weight uh, or a uh, betrayer or, or betrayers really who had uh, who had no other use other than to be cast off or trampled underfoot and this is primarily the dispute that the donatists uh, latched onto ultimately they were concerned about morality they were concerned about the moral purity of the church, much like the Pelagians, and their response to this was to be extremely strict with those who had lapsed. If you were not faithful, you were not allowed readmission into the church. That was the bottom line. If you were faithful, then and you had withstood persecution, well, then you proved yourself to truly be one of God's, uh, one of God's elect, and you were welcomed back into the fold. While all of the Diocletian persecution came to an end in 311, for all intents and purposes, North Africa's persecution ended in the year 305. This was for political reasons that I don't necessarily have time to go into right now. Those who failed to withstand persecution and maintain their testimony were entitled Traditores. This was a pejorative name, and these people were treated with great scorn and mistrust. In 311, when the Bishop of Carthage died on a trip to Rome, the 
position traditionally would have been given to the Numidians. They were a Berber population, largely, and took the issue of lapse of lapsed Christians very seriously. Very seriously, the Carthaginians were afraid of this, and so appointed another bishop by the name of Sicilian into the post and consecrated him. Two of the bishops who consecrated him were from Numidia, while a third was from a nearby region. The Numidians, understandably, felt totally slighted. This should have been their position. And the conflict was further escalated when it was found out that one of the, uh, one of the bishops who consecrated Sicilian was, in fact, a traditores. He was a traitor. And so they started a rival faction with their own rival bishop. They consecrated this bishop just despite the Carthaginians. And this bishop subsequently died. This is pre-medicine. You you can't fault the man for doing it. But shortly after this, he was succeeded by Donatus. Donatus was a man of upstanding moral character, admired even by his enemies. Even Augustine, who disagreed with nearly all of his positions, called him and Cyprian precious gems. This was more than a conflict over bishops, however. This was really at its core, a class conflict. As persecution ended and Christianity became became the favored religion throughout the Roman Empire, the Carthaginians, who were in large part Romanized, began to come to uh, to the Numidians and seek baptism. They wanted to embrace Christianity and be adopted into the church. The, the Numidians, in contrast to this, were largely a poor urban population. They were mostly of the peasant class. And so they viewed these Carthaginians coming into their realm as the rulers coming to dominate something that had been theirs, the church. It was very intimate, and with the appointment of Sicilian, they were showing themselves to be out of touch with who the Numidians were. This, of course, further entrenched both sides in their opposition to one another on a deeper level than just the bishops, but on a socio-political level as well. Donatus was a man of great influence within his region. So much so that the faction that appointed him became known as the Donatists. He took holiness seriously and expected this standard to be maintained among the individuals in his congregation as well as the church at large. Augustine noted that the church in Tagaste and the population in general was practically totally Donatist by the time that he rose to his position. Jerome, likewise, said that Donatism was the religion of almost all of Africa. This was in no small part due to those aforementioned ethnic and racial undertones which became the norm in this controversy and also presented a problem in dealing with Donatism as an idea. Constantina tried to strike down the sect because he wanted to unify the church and the Donatists weren't conducive to this. It wasn't until Julian the Apostate that the Donatists would be granted back the land that was seized from them by uh, the Constantine uh, government. 
by Augustine's day, the Donatists had waxed and waned, in no small part due to Roman persecution, as well as their open call for violence, in some cases, against the Roman government. However, Augustine's main contention with the Donatists wasn't really political, but had more to do with the nature of the church. In the Donatist view, the holiness of a church was predicated upon the holiness of its members. Therefore, the membership must be holy in order for a church to be considered holy. This also led to the question of those who had been leaders in the church or those who were currently leaders in the church. If one had been a leader in the church and then lapsed and then came back, they were not, in any kind of leading capacity, they were not viewed as genuine uh, believers or genuine members of the church. So someone like Sicilian, who had been appointed by a bishop who had at one point lapsed, was now totally out of line to perform any of his bishop uh, bishoply duties. And anything that he did do was invalid because of his invalid appointment. This also forced the Donatists to view themselves as the only true church. But it was really that issue of holiness that Augustine pressed back on. Augustine's critique of the Donatists was scathing. They claimed to be the true church, and yet their activities, even within their own congregations, was far from holy. Some of the followers of Donatists were heedlessly violent. Others were guilty of fornication, lying, drunkenness, and other things that were certainly outside of the purview of a real holy life. Even if they were holy, Augustine contended, in these matters, though, they would still be in sin because they were ultimately schismatics. And schism is an act devoid of love. And without love, one cannot be holy. Therefore, for a church that contended that they were the only true church and excluded people who had lapsed, they certainly demonstrated a lack of love within their own walls. A church is not holy, Augustine reasoned, because the members are holy. A church is holy because its head, Jesus Christ, is holy. Because every member falls underneath that head, they are made holy and are free to pursue a life of holiness. The church is not contingent upon them because they all bear the stain of original sin. All of humanity, if you remember from our podcast on the Pelagians, Augustine argues that all of humanity is guilty of this sin and so are unable to be holy in their own right. They need the power of Christ to, to enable them to live and seek this holy life. So a church is holy because Christ is the Holy One. It is wrong to try and make a visible church totally holy because this confuses the distinction between the visible and the invisible. There might be those within the visible church that claim to be faithful believers but are in fact not truly Christians. The church as those who are the body of Christ, the true body of Christ, true Christians are not made up of just the visible church but are within the visible church. The invisible is contained within the visible. It is those who are united to Christ or in the body of Christ that are, as Augustine would say, the elect. Augustine goes on to follow the more Roman line of thinking. 
in showing the office to contain most of the power of a bishop or a pastor um, rather than the person themselves. And this must be the case because if one's baptism could be rendered invalid by the life of a person, of the person who administered the baptism, then a Christian would always be in fear that their baptism was invalid. Even if the person who is baptized understands their own unworthiness, they can never be settled in the fact that they are indeed saved. No, it must be one's union with Christ. It must be one's membership within the invisible body that takes precedent over the visible. so much more that could be said about this topic, but I think that we've hit about the limit for what can be reached in this podcast. Maybe one day we can revisit it and revisit how the Donatist controversy was the catalyst that shaped Augustine's just war theory, a theory that influenced even the founding fathers and even Christians still to this day, as much of Augustine's thought continues to. But um, that being said, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope, you, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this and learning more about a, a controversy that I think has particular relevance, and I'll leave it for you to decide as to the applications of uh, Augustine's disagreements and debates with the Donatists. Um, I also want to extend, again, that invitation to you to email me at echpodcast at gmail.com with your uh, thoughts with your comments, with any questions, and maybe we can get to those questions later in a Q&A type of episode. But until then, thank you once again for joining me this evening in church history.